This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So in uh, Danima, Book 3, Aristotle, you know, infamously asserts, as we've seen, that the soul is in some way all things, right? Uh, it's a feature of Aristotle's psychology and epistemology that St. Thomas, you know, fully incorporates. And what Aristotle means by the statement is the intellect is in some fashion identical to its object. So when thinking about wood, the intellect becomes woody, right? So this is a dark and uh, dark saying and a stumbling block for many would-be Aristotelian Thomists. Um, it's tempting to try to find a deflationary reading of this startling claim, a reading according to which Aristotle and Thomas are just representationalists of a familiar kind, of the sort exemplified by the Stoics, Occam or Locke historically, or Jerry Fodor, Doug Douglas Hofstetter, uh, Millikan, and others uh, in the contemporary world. So once domesticated in this way, our modest Aristotle is merely claiming that the intellect contains something, an idea or concept, that represents or intends its object. Um, such deflationist readings have been offered by Claude Panaccio, Robert Pasnow, and Jeff Brower and Susan Brower Toland. Now I'm going to argue to the contrary that we should opt for the wild and gloriously inflated Aristotle, one corresponding to a naive and, and literal reading of De Anima. I'll try to show that we can make perfectly good sense of this radical claim and that we have good reasons to think it's in fact true. So to do this, I'm going to have to present my own account drawing on Thomas's interpretation of Aristotle's theory of forms. So here I'm going to differ, I think, with, uh, with Dr. Gorman in thinking that you've got to get the theory of universals right first before you can make sense of the intellect, right? Uh, you can't just sort of uh, bracket that. Um, so this will involve a sketch then of... Um, uh, then in section two, I'll explain how forms can exist in the human intellect. And this will involve a sketch of St. Thomas's theory of intelligible species and the process of abstraction. So again, it's going to be review, really, what we've heard. Then section three, I'll give the payoff for the theory. It's account of propositional thought and of propositional intuition and inference. So the whole shebang. Um, there are two principal alternatives to this Aristotelian theory of cognition representationalism and Platonism. These are the terms I'll give them. Uh, in section four, I'll explain the defects of two forms of Platonism. And, um, and then in section five, the last section, I'll give arguments for preferring Aristotle to representationalism. Um, the first, and then I'll give two reasons. The first of these appeals to the possibility of determinate semantic content. So this is an argument that's been developed by James Ross and more recently by Edward Fazer. And then the second one involves the possibility of certain kinds of knowledge, namely the knowledge of natural or logical necessities and impossibilities. And I'll explain how these are connected and why I think the argument for knowledge is actually the more fundamental one. So before launching into the discussion of Aristotle's theory of forms, I want to be explicit in, in narrowing my focus this morning. So on Aristotle's theory, forms are of two basic kinds, as we've seen, substantial and accidental forms. Substances are um, created things that exist in the most fundamental and central meaning of the word. Accidents are features of substances like qualities and quantities. Uh, accidental unities are substances together with, with these features, like sitting Socrates or musical Plato. So I believe that both kinds of forms, both substantial and accidental, uh, are present both in the natural, in natural things and in the human intellect. But I'm going to focus in this paper exclusively on accidental forms, like the quantities studied in mathematics or the sensible qualities that are presented to us in perception. Now, the issue of how Thomas understands our cognition of substantial forms and the corresponding essences of natural substances is a complicated one. Thomas thought that such substantial forms and essences are in some sense knowable to us, but in some other sense, they remain hidden. So I'm going to try to avoid all those complications by focusing just on accidental forms and unities, which also have a kind of essence and definition, um, ones which I think are not in any way hidden from us in Thomas's view. And I just want to underscore that our knowledge of these accidents, of their essences or quasi-essences, is, as our distinguished president will put it, a BFD. Right? Uh, it's not something kind of minor thing. It's actually quite important for understanding the science. Uh, OK, section one, Aristotle's theory of the forms. Before investigating Aristotle's theory of the intellect, we have to get clear about the theory of the forms. Uh, if we get that wrong, I don't think we can hope to understand what Aristotle could mean by saying, talking about the identity of the intellect with its object, 
since the proper object of human intellect is always a form of some kind for Aristotle. Now, unfortunately, there's tremendous and fierce disagreement about what Aristotle's forms are. But fortunately, I think St. Thomas's theory is much clearer, and I'll assume that it's an accurate interpretation of what Aristotle intended it was. Uh, to understand Aristotle rightly on this point, point, we must back up, I think, and first consider Plato's theory of forms. Take, for example, Plato's account of the forms in the mouth of Socrates in the, in the Phaedo, 100b, and so on. Uh, Socrates takes forms to be that by which things are a certain way, right? The form of triangularity is that the triangle itself is that by which triangles are triangular. The form of beauty is that by which beautiful things are beautiful. Now, the Latin language, conveniently enough, has a, has a case specifically dedicated to representing this by which relation, the ablative case. So I'm going to speak of the ablative theory of forms, right? Forms are the by which, the by whichness right, of things. Now, Aristotle's great innovation, which is actually prefigured by Plato himself in later dialogues, was to immanentize and pluralize Plato's forms. So instead of a single form of the dog itself, we have individual canine forms, one for each dog. Nonetheless, Aristotle does not fall into the opposite extreme of nominalism. Um, so, and I'll explain why in a bit. Um, I'm going to again assume that, um, uh, that St. Thomas's interpretation here is right, and I'm going to draw on some recent work by Jeff, Jeff Brower uh, on, on Aristotle's or Thomas's moderate uh, realism. So Aristotle differs from the nominalists, I think, in holding the substances are metaphysically complex consisting of substantial form, prime matter, and some accidental forms. Uh, two forms belong to the same species if they are not primitively or fundamentally distinct from each other. Right? So their distinctness from each other is not inexplicable or primitive or basic. It's rather derived, explainable distinctness. Thus, Aristotle can, in contrast to the nominalists, give an informative account of the resemblance that unifies the members of a species. Right? For a nominalist, that's just a primitive. They just resemble each other, end of story. The Aristotelian can give an account of that in terms of this derived distinctness or individuation by matter. So two human forms, so my soul and Frank's soul, are distinct because they inform distinct packets of prime matter. Right? Now the packets of prime matter or signate matter that I have and that Frank have, they are primitively distinct. They're not distinct because of anything. They're just distinct. But the distinctness of our souls is grounded in the distinctness of the prime matter. These, if the substantial forms of, if any, any two substantial forms of the same species borrow their mutual distinctness from a more fundamental distinction at the level of prime matter. Okay? And this gives rise, I've argued in some of my papers, to a kind of counterfactual or counterpossible identity between the two. So my soul and Frank's soul would be numerically one soul if our prime matters were identical. Right? So they have a kind of counterpossible identity. And we can use that to explain symmetry and, and transitivity of exact resemblance or conspecificity, which is really nice because the nominalists have no such explanation. Um, similarly, two accidental forms of the same species, so my musicality and Ben's musicality, let's say, uh, they also lack primitive numerical distinction, right? Their distinction is parasitic on the distinction between the two substances in which they inhere, right? So my musicality is different from Ben's new musicality because I'm different from Ben, right? So the difference of the substance is more fundamental. The distinction itself is more fundamental than the distinction of the, of, the, uh, of the forms. Earlier, I suggested that accidents were features of substances. Now, accidental forms, in contrast, I think, are not features of substances. They are that by which substances have those features, right? So accidental forms are also ablative entities, in my way of putting it. They're anti-rem entities. Socrates' musicality is that by which Socrates has the feature of musicality. This is a gen there's a genuinely causal and explanatory relation between the accidental form and the fact that Socrates is musical. Talking about Socrates' form of musicality is not just a circumlocutionary and picturesque way of talking about uh, Aristotle's music, uh, Socrates' musicality, right? Yeah, the, the, music, the, the form of musicality pulls real explanatory weight on this account. Okay? That's important. Now, does such an account, of, sometimes people say, well, then your account then is just collapsing the distinction between formal and efficient causation. Your formal causation sounds like a real causation. 
Yeah, it is real causation, right? Formal and efficient causation are two species of, of causation on my picture. And in fact, formal causation is the more fundamental kind of causation, actually, because whenever there's efficient causation, there's always the introduction of some new form, either substantial or accidental, that then does its job of formal causation. Okay, section one. Section two, forms in the human intellect. So once we have such ablative forms in our ontology, as real entities, right, we can ask how they might contribute to the theory of human cognition and knowledge. Could forms of the very same kind, the very same kind, that are found in nature, play a role in explaining our knowledge of nature? Aristotle realized they could. And here, too, he's building on Plato's original insight. Right? In order to think about and to know lines in general, I must have some cognitive access to whatever it is that grounds the sameness of all lines in nature. For, for Plato, what grounds that is some transcendent form. Right? And so for Plato, you have to have access to that transcendent form. For Aristotle, the unity of the species is constituted by a class of forms, forms that have derived numerical distinctness from each other. Right? That's what unifies them into a species. So for Aristotle, the human intellect has to have access not to the form of the line, but to a form of linearity that's of the very same species as the forms of linearity in nature, right, in the natural world. Now, how, how is this to be, right? Certainly, I don't have to have the physical presence of an actual line in order to grasp linearity intellectually. Nor, in fact, do I have to have a sensory or imagined presentation of a line actually before my mind just in order to understand linearity. My capacity to understand line segments, therefore, must be grounded in something internal to my intellectual powers themselves. Right? And if this is to be understanding about the lines, to be knowledge of real lines, a form of linearity must be present in my intellect or must be directly acting upon my intellect in, in, the, in the way of formal causation. And this presence or this activity of a form in the human intellect is what St. Thomas called the presence of an intelligible species. Right? So I take it to, that an intelligible species is a form of the very same kind, the very same species, as the forms that occur in nature, corresponding forms that occur in nature. But how is this possible, right? So here's the problem. If a form is present in my mind in this way, it must be a kind of quality, right? Because my understanding of what a line is, is a mental habit, right? It's a capacity to think about lines and to know, I think, something about lines, the, the modal profile of lines, what they must and must not be. Um, and a habit is a kind of quality right, in Aristotle. But lines are accidents of quantity. So how can a form of quantity be a form of quality, right? That's, that's the problem. So let's step back a minute and consider what it means to say that a form, like a line, is a form of quantity. What does that mean? On the ablative theory of forms, a form is a quantitative form when it is something by which a natural substance has certain quantitative features. So I think on Aristotle's view, the form itself does not have that quantitative feature. The form of a line is not linear. It's that by which the boundary of a surface of a natural substance has linearity, right? Now, when a form of this kind is present in the mind, it acts upon the mind in the same way, but its influence is received by the mind in a different way than it's received by a natural substance, right? So in a quantitative form, so-called, acts upon the human intellect, the result is the intellect has a certain quality, namely the quality of understanding that quantity. Okay? So it's perfectly coherent. Uh, similarly, a substantial form is received by the intellect in a different way from the way it's received by prime matter. Okay? It's the very same kind of form. It's the very same kind of formal causal relation. But the reception of the causation is different in the two cases. right? Reception is determined by the mode of the receiver, the nature of the receiver. That's a fundamental idea here for Aristotle, and a crucial idea, I think. Okay, the two, these two modes of reception. So I want to say there are not two forms of formal causation, really important. There are two modes of receiving formal causation, okay, determined, by the, determined by the recipient. When an accidental form is present in the natural substance, it makes that substance instantiate the corresponding accident. Okay? When an accidental form is present in the human intellect, it makes the intellect understand that accident. Okay. I'm going to say something a little bit about this, because even though it's slightly off topic, since it's come up, I'm going to say something about the immateriality of the intellect here at this point. Right? So let me, let me uh, do a little digression here for a minute, if that's all right. 
The human intellect must be immaterial in nature. We cannot receive, we cannot understand by means of a corporeal organ, since such an organ would be in the wrong category, the wrong ontological category, to be the recipient of a full range, anyway, of immaterially received uh, formal causation. So in the, in the case of the more spiritual senses, like sight and hearing, perhaps smell, the sense organ does have a limited capacity by virtue of its intrinsic nature to receive sensible forms immaterially. So there's a sense in which the medium and the, and the transparent part of the eye receives immaterially color. Um, it actually makes sense scientifically, right? because the, the, uh, the green color of a wall right, is green in one way, the photons that move past through the medium into my eye are green in another way, right? So there's genuine greenness in both cases, but there are different sort of modes of greenness depending on the nature of the thing. The, the atmosphere, in order to transmit the photons, must be transparent to the green uh, uh, light, so it must not itself be green, right? Because if it were green, in, in the first sense, it would interfere with that. So, so some bodies do have the capacity to receive some forms immaterially, but only when they don't have the corresponding form naturally, right, materially. Right? And so this is a, what I'm going to call a, the exclusion, exclusion principle. So the reception of the formal reception exclusion principle, which basically says that if something receives a form materially, it can't receive it immaterially and vice versa. Because, why? Because reception is determined by the nature of the, of, the, of the recipient, right? So if the recipient has the capacity to receive it materially, it must receive it materially, right? Only something that cannot receive it materially is going to be able to receive it immaterially. Right? So that's really crucial. And then this gives us a little argument, a couple of uh, kind of complex syllogisms here to prove that the intellect is immaterial. Um, I'm just going to talk about here about quantitative forms for a minute, okay? Because it simplifies things a bit. So every body is capable of receiving some quantitative forms naturally or materially, right? I think that's true. This is just uh, every body is capable of at least some quantitative forms uh, to be received naturally or materially. Nothing is capable, here's the exclusion principle, nothing that's capable of receiving some quantitative form naturally is capable of receiving all quantitative forms Im immaterially or intellectually, right? because you can't receive the same form in two different modes, right? So, so therefore, it follows, so logistically, that no body is capable of receiving all quantitative forms intentionally or intellectually or immaterially, right? There's gonna be, every body will have blind spots. There'll be some quantitative forms at least that they cannot receive immaterially. But every intellect, every human intellect at least, is capable of receiving all quantitative forms immaterially, intellectually. That seems, that seems plausible. Conclusion, no intellect is a body, right? All intellects are immaterial in nature. And, uh, and then, you know, you can argue that the only immaterial part of a human being is the rational, is the soul. Therefore, it must be the soul that receives these forms, right? But anything that receives forms, per se, is subsistent, right? Therefore, the soul is a subsistent, immaterial entity. And anything that's immaterial and subsistent is not naturally corruptible. Therefore, the soul is not naturally corruptible, which is what Aquinas means by immortal. So anyway, that's just a sketch of how I think you could go from all this to some real interesting sort of theological conclusions. Okay, um, back to the main point again. Um, now, I haven't said too much yet about um, what the, uh, how this habit of understanding uh, comes to be. As we know, Aristotle Aquinas thought that there's a natural process uh, by which in a special faculty of the mind, the active intellect uses an appropriate sensory image as its instrument to produce a corresponding form in the intellect. Okay. I think it's exactly what Father, Father Brandt and, and Sister Anna were talking about. Uh, Aristotle calls the, calls the capacity to receive such intelligible species the potential intellect, the possible intellect, and the process is called abstraction. Now, crucially, abstraction does not involve the stripping off of extraneous features from a sensory image to produce a more impoverished representation. That's the Humean model, right? Cognitive or intellectual representations are just pale copies of sensory images. That's not the Aristotelian picture. Instead, it's rather the power to transmute and to elevate 
the information that's contained in a sensory representation into a new instance of a corresponding form, an ablative form, right, that acts upon and is present in the intellect and is thereby the basis of a new habit of understanding in the intellect. So this theory of abstraction, of course, is based on the fact that in the normal course of life, in order to understand a certain kind of color or smell or spatial quantity, I must first have sensed or at least imagined something that has that accident. Uh, there is, in addition, of course, the possibility of understanding mental operations by kind of introspection or self-reflection, but for simplicity's sake, I'm going to set that aside. So I'm just going to focus on abstraction of uh, material forms uh, through, through this process. All right, section three, I'm going to go a little behind. Um, the Thomistic account of propositional thought and inference. So this is where I start getting payoff. Uh, the presence of the form in the mind is not yet an instance of thought. Okay? It's rather the, of the basis of a habit or a capacity for thought. So according to St. Thomas, propositional thoughts are composed of things called interior words. Right? The Latin word here is uh, verbum interius or intentio intellectus or conceptio intellectus. Uh, the presence of an intelligible species in my mind gives me the capacity to form interior words that represent the corresponding form of thing. So there is a kind of representation here in, in, in Aquinas, but it's not, it's not the intelligible species is not representational. It's actually the, the form that has the right species, but it enables us to have interior words that then do represent the corresponding form. So once we have this capacity for forming meaningful interior words, I can then freely construct propositions with arbitrary logical complexity. And this is the capacity that non-rational non animals lack. Non-human animals can learn general facts, that certain kind of berry tastes good, or that turning left and then right in this maze will get you to the cheese, and so on. But, but they, cannot, they cannot freely construct propositions. They cannot formulate po possible hypotheses and then test them against uh, future experience, right? So as I was talking with Ben about this this morning, that um, you know, we, should, we should recognize other animals as rational once we're ready to admit them to our department. Basically. <laughs> if they're able to do the, if they're able to do, formulate these hypotheses, test them, okay. Um, now the power to construct arbitrarily complex propositions brings with it the capacity to engage in formal inference. For example, the power to construct mathematical proofs and scientific demonstrations. Again, of unlimited length and complexity, unbounded complexity. Uh, again, non-human animals can engage in simple inferences that mimic uh, formal deductions but they cannot reason their way through problems of great complexity. Right? They cannot apply formal rules to understand propositions in the context of a proof. Now Aristotle thought, and Thomas agrees, that our ability to engage in propositional thought and formal deduction depends in some way on our using sensory images, imagery or phantasms. So there are many ways to take this. I'll just give you my take. My take is that the, our, on this limitation is that we think by associating interior words with images that represent them, right? So these, these images might be images of exterior words of a natural language, like English or Latin. Uh, propositional thought then would be an, would involve a kind of internal monologue carried on by means of conventional symbols, the lexicon of a natural language, where those, uh, those images are representing interior words which in turn are connected to this intelligible species, right? So that's how, that's how the monologue has its, has its meaning. So, so how do the, what, again, what do the intelligible species do? They play a crucial role, I'm going to argue, in explaining our knowledge of modality, of what's necessary and impossible. Um, so for instance, take the geometrical necessities that are coded in the axioms of geometry. To understand what a point is, it's not enough to know that in fact, between every two points there's a third point. You must know that it's necessarily the case. That's part of the very essence of points and lines that that should be so. And similarly, to understand what colors are, you must grasp that it's impossible for two colors, two, for a surface to be black and white at the same time, not just that we don't find it, in, in fact. So it's, it's the forms, the ablative forms, that are responsible both for the facts about possibility and necessity and for our knowledge of those facts. Both the modal facts and our knowledge of the facts have the same ground. The presence of an intelligible species in the, in the potential intellect imposes upon our thoughts and acts of imagination the very same structure that's imposed upon natural things by forms of the same species. Right? The form of black excludes the possible coexistence of the form of white from a surface. And the form of black in the potential intellect 
prevents our thinking that a black surface could simultaneously be white. And so the very same uh, thing is explaining both those facts. The forms of points ensure that between any two points there's a third, and the form of the point in the potential intellect ensures that the mind thinks that it's necessarily so, right? that between any points there's a third point. What must be combined in nature must be combined in thought. What cannot be combined in nature cannot be combined in thought. In both cases, it's the ablative forms that are responsible uh, for, for these uh, modal facts in both, in both domains. Okay, so now let me talk about the alternatives uh, in the time I have remaining. Platonism, representationalism. So um, first, Platonism. The, the Aristotelian Thomist view of, of, of ablative forms and intelligible, intelligible species provides, I think, a clear and simple explanation, both of semantic content and of knowledge of modality. Now, in order to claim that it's the best possible explanation, I have to look at the alternatives. So I'm going to look at two this morning, Platonism. Uh, so in the Platonist and representationalism. So by, by what I mean by representationalism in this context is a theory that says that we, we think about external things, but not by the presence in the mind of a form of the same species, right? So it's, it's sort of a catch-all for any, anything that's not Platonism or Aristotelianism. has to have to be some kind of representationalism. Uh, now, Platonists agrees with Aristotle in thinking that, there's, that some forms of natural things exist in the mind, right? They differ, of course, in thinking there, there, there's a single numerically one form for each species, right? Rather than a multiplicity of forms that exist uh, in, in different individuals. So Platonists must provide some account of how such transcendent forms can exist in the mind, or can act upon the mind. In particular, they must ask this, answer this question. Is the presence of a form in the human mind a matter of the essence of the mind and of the form? Or is it a contingent fact that any human mind has a particular Platonic form? Right? And this gives rise to two versions of Platonism, actually, a kind of innatist version of Platonism, which is the more familiar kind, and also a kind of empiricist Platonism, in which uh, our sensory experience with the world is actually somehow responsible for the presence of a transcendent form in our minds. And so I'll consider that as well. Now, the fundamental problem for the innatist Platonist, the familiar Platonist, is that of explaining the human ignorance of forms, right? If all forms that can be known are necessarily present in all human minds at all times, because they're essentially sort of built into it, then why don't we all have exhaustive knowledge, right, of all the principles of mathematical and natural sciences? So um, Platonists typically appeal to some theory of for forgetting and reminiscence here, right? The union of the human soul with the body introduces an obstacle to our knowledge of the forms that we have, a kind of forgetfulness, and our experience jogs our memory back into, into life. Now this seems to be an unsatisfactory account from both theological and anthropological perspectives, since it makes the relation between the body and the, and the soul one of, fundamentally one of antagonism. Right? The human soul would be better off disembodied, but how and why then did it become embodied in the first place? And what are we to make of the doctrine of resurrection and so on? So there are theological worries here. So let's turn to the empiricist version of Platonism. Central problem here is one of internal, internal coherency of the view. Right? We're supposed to think now that sense perception somehow brings about the contingent presence of a platonic form in a particular human mind. So this requires platonic forms to become part of the hurly-burly of causal interaction in the natural world. Uh, but how can a natural thing cause a platonic form to be contingently present in a particular substance. This is, of course, just, just a particular manifestation of a more general problem for Platonism, which is how to explain the contingent and accidental presence of any form in any natural substance. Right? Uh, it seems to require forms to be intrinsically changeable, right? since there has to be an intrinsic, intrinsic change in the form that makes it come to be really present in a particular substance at a particular time. Right, so, um, so we, we, can talk, we can set aside actually talk about presence and just talk about action, right? What is it that makes the form act contingently upon a particular intellect for the Platonist, right? Uh, the problem for the Platonist is what is it on the side of the form that makes it be intellectually received by a particular intellect at a particular time, 
right? There has to be something, either a nexus, a connection between the form and the mind, or like an avatar of the form that exists in the mind or something like that. And if you go that far, you're practically an Aristotelian, right? You might as well ditch the transcendent form and just go with the nexuses or the avatars. It's a, it's a cleaner and simpler kind of model. So I haven't really ruled out Platonism, but I said, if you want to be a Platonist, you should be a Platonist who's practically an Aristotelian, and so it won't really matter. Okay, fifth and the final section, uh, representationalism. Unfortunately, this is the longest section, sorry, so I'll try to compress it. Um, so as I said, what do I mean by representationalist? It just, I mean something negative, right? Someone who tries to explain our understanding and our knowledge of the world without using ablative forms at all, right? Um, now, all nominalists, as, my, as I understand them, have to be representationalists because my sense of nominalist is someone just, who just rejects formal causation altogether, right? So they have to be. But you could be a Platonist or an Aristotelian and be a nominalist and be a representationalist if you wanted to, but don't. It's not a good, not a good idea, right? So we won't do it. Um, so for the representationalist, there will be something like Aquinas' interior word, some concept, right, in the mind. And these concepts or interior words would represent, somehow, real species out there in nature. But the representa this representation relation, whatever it is, is not to be explained now in terms of formal causation, in terms of some form acting upon the intellect. Right? That's, that's the picture. Now, there are again two forms of representationalism. Uh, there's reductive and non-reductive or primitive representationalism. So a reductive representationalist attempts to identify the, this representation relation, whatever it is, with some form of causal, or maybe teleological connection between the mind and the world. Okay? So what makes the case this concept represents some species in the world has something to do with the causal interaction between the, that mind and the world. Right? Another a primitive representationalist just takes representation to be a primitive. Right? It's undefinable, it can't be reduced, just, it's just a primitive element. And uh, Jeff Brower and, and uh, Susan Brower Toland have argued that this is St. Thomas's view, that he's a representationalist, but it's a kind of primitive representation relation. So obviously I think that's wrong. Um, now, there's nothing wrong from an Aristotelian Thomist viewpoint with representationalism as such. In fact, I think that Aristotle and St. Thomas both endorse a kind of representationalism with respect to all our non-intellectual thought or, or representation of the world. Right? our knowledge of the world, let's call it, put it that way. So when I perceive a color by my senses, or imagine a color, I don't think the color is, well, it, it may be present in the eye, but it's not gonna be literally present in the brain, right? So there's gonna be something in the brain that's going on that does represent uh, a different, uh, uh, the color. So there'll be some quality or quantity or something like that in the brain of one species that represents a different species, the color on the object, right? So, um, so why is that okay? So in the case of, the, of a represented quality, we have two qualities going on here. We have a representing quality in the, in the mind or the brain and the soul, and a represented quality out there in the world, right? That's, that's the picture. And then some kind of representation relationship between these two, these two qualities. Um, now, when an accident, on the Aristotelian view, when an accident is understood, there isn't just some kind of representation relation between two qualities. It's rather the very quality that's understood is acting directly on the intellect. Right? That's the picture, on the Aristotelian picture. But I think the Aristotelians are fine with the representationalist account of sense perception. You don't have to have the very sensible quality that's being sensed active, you know, informing the brain at the moment in which you're sensing it, I think, for the Aristotelian. So we can ask, if representation is good enough for sense perception, especially let's say tactile sense perception, why isn't it good enough for intellectual thought and knowledge? Why, does, why is the Aristotelian happy with it in one case and re utterly rejects it in the second case? And there's two reasons for this, right? One has to do with semantic content, the determinacy of semantic content, this is the Ross-Phaser sort of argument, and the other one again has to go with modal knowledge, which I've already uh, alluded to here occasionally. Okay, so the first problem is, as I said, noted by Ross and Phaser, uh, it's a problem specifically for reductive representationalism about intentional content. If you're a primitive representationalist, you don't have this problem. But you can just stipulate there's this primitive representation relation, and it's perfectly precise, in the end of problem. But that's not the most popular view. Most people who are representationalists prefer some kind of reductive account. So let's look at that. So for reductive representationalists, the relation of representation consists in some kind of extrinsic, efficient, causal connection 
between a species of the representing quality in, in the brain or the mind and the represented quality in the world. So roughly, a mental item type of quality R represents a feature F in the environment, just in case human beings have a natural disposition or potentiality to form an instance of R in the brain whenever under the influence of the presence of F in the environment. So there's a natural teleological connection between the presence of F and the presence of R inside the brain. Um, so the best version of this would involve attributing sort of fundamental potentialities to the human being of responding in this way to, to features in the environment. And again, this is, this is what we should say about sensation, actually. This is the, the right account for sensation. Um, so it, it's fine for sensory representation, but it fails as an account of the content of thought. So as Heraclitus and Plato recognized long ago, extrinsic causal relations, efficient causal relations, between organisms and their environment have a certain degree of variability and slackness. No matter how normal the circumstances are, the same cause will never have exactly the same effect twice. Right? You don't step in the same river twice. Uh, human color perception varies slightly from person to person, and even from occasion to occasion. Even under optimal lighting, two normal human beings right, will identify slightly different samples as exemplifying a pure primary color like, like red or blue. Uh, the slackness in causation means that the corresponding representational content is somewhat vague or indeterminate in this case. Now, this vagueness or indeterminacy poses no problem for our account of sense perception, right? Because sense perception is designed to help us navigate successfully through the world. Our natural, our natural environment, our behavior are, also are themselves somewhat variable and imprecise. And so an element of imprecision in our sense knowledge is of no practical consequence, right? The senses are good enough for government work, basically. Uh, that is for all practical purposes. However, in the domain of the intellect, it's essential that at least some of our concepts or interior words have absolutely precise content, right? So if I'm, if I'm to engage in an exact science like mathematics or geometry, the concepts must be correspondingly exact. My concept of a line cannot be roughly line-like spatial structure, right? Uh, such vague content will not validate the universal axioms of, of geometry. Similarly, my, my concept of a large number like a million and one cannot be vague. It can't count equally as the concept of 999,909 or a million, right? Uh, without undermining the fundamental truths of arithmetic. Yet at some point, our fundamental powers of interacting with and discriminating with, discriminating our physical environment, will be unable to sustain the degree of precision that's required for intellectual understanding. Now there's another tack which um, representationalists could take. They could go with uh, David Lewis's best interpretation model instead. On this model, mental items are assigned a definite content on the basis of what would, of finding the best overall interpretation of the uh, organism's total behavior in the world. Um, now, I think as an account in, in Lewis, as an account of, of where intentionality comes from, it's viciously circular because you need to have intentionality in the, in the interpreter, right? But if you're a theist, you can appeal to God, right? So we could say that the content of a representation of the brain is just whatever content God would assign to that quality, given the total uh, behavior of that human being or, or of that community. But this has the downside of making the content of any particular mental act an extrinsic fact about that act, depending upon the totality of all my other mental and physical actions in my environment. And this would create serious obstacles for myself for self-knowledge. I couldn't really know what the precise content of any of my thoughts was, because it would depend on all the other thoughts I have and will have in the future, for that matter. And that would be, I think, a big cost to pay. So set that aside. Um, second problem. And this is the last point, um, so hopefully I can wrap this up quickly. Um, the problem of modal knowledge, right? This is the more fundamental problem. Having modal knowledge involves the ability to distinguish between universal generalizations that are grounded in the essences of things and those that are only contingent or local in character, right? Uh, we know, we can know that necessarily there's a point between any two points. Right, this modal knowledge is grounded in our apprehension of the essences of points and of the relation of betweenness. In contrast, I can learn that every stream in my neighborhood freezes every winter. Not true in Texas, but if I were elsewhere, I might think that. Uh, this latter knowledge is empirical and conveys information that is contingent and local in nature. Right? 
Now, sense perception and sense memory alone cannot enable us to make this distinction. They cannot account for our knowledge of metaphysical or essentialist modality. To do so, we must have a second source of knowledge, a knowledge of the essences as such. Right? But representationalism, representationalism about intellectual knowledge, would be an insuperable obstacle to such essentialist knowledge, knowledge of essences. Right? Representational content can convey only information about the actual distribution of the accidents in the environment. It cannot convey any information about, what, about all possible situations or about the essences of the accidents that are underlying this representational process. Now, could the representationalist appeal to innate knowledge and natural selection? Perhaps our modal knowledge is encoded into our imaginative capacities. So we know that something's possible if we can imagine it, we know that it's impossible if we can't imagine it, right? And let's say that, let's say that these are imaginative capacities are, are innate and hardwired into us by natural selection and evolutionary history or something like that. So you still get the causal connection there at some point. Now the problem with this suggestion is that natural selection itself is indifferent to this distinction between accidental and necessary universal generalizations, right? Left to itself in a representationalist scenario, natural selection would want our imaginative capacities to reflect all the true generalizations in our environment, in our evolutionary history, whether they're necessary or merely contingent. It wouldn't care, right? So if, if all my ancestors grow up in a situation where it's really cold every winter, uh, natural selection would say, you should make, we should make warm winters unimaginable, right? Because uh, being able to imagine warm winters would be, would be a, a, a cost to your evolutionary fitness, right? Aristotelians, in contrast, can, can appeal to the imagination as a vehicle for modal knowledge since they can suppose that the presence in our intellect of the intelligible species is what structures our imaginative capacities in such a way that we cannot imagine, uh, or that what we can or cannot imagine reliably at least tracks uh, these essential, uh, essential facts, modal facts. So what we need is a metaphysical account for our knowledge of essences. To do geometry, you must have intuitive knowledge of the essences of spatial qualities, spatial quantities. Um, so knowledge, all knowledge depends upon a real connection between our beliefs and the things that are known. This is the fundamental moral, I think, of the last 60 years of epistemology in the analytic world from Gettier's paper on. Intuitive knowledge of essences requires then a connection between the essences and the human mind. And this representationalism cannot provide us. And so I, I cite a couple papers here by non-Aristotelians, uh, George Buehler and John Bankson, who've sort of recognized this fact and have, and have argued, this, argued for this quite, quite persuasively. The flow of information that's mediated by efficient causation alone is filtered in such a way that it cannot carry the information about the distinction between the metaphysically necessary and the contingent generalizations. That distinction just, just is lost in the process. So how is this knowledge encoded into us? Right? Could, could God provide the needed connection without formal causation, right? So now we're gonna, we're in sort of desperate territory here, right? Representationalist got his back to his wall. He's gonna say, okay, let's try and figure out some other way to get a, a connection between essences in the mind without formal causation. Maybe God can do it, right? Um, how can he do it? Well, one way to do it would be to encode into our minds a set of axioms, right? So maybe he just encodes the axioms of, of Euclid and of number theory into, into the brain some way. And, you know, God knows these things, so it's a reliable process, right? What's wrong with that? Well, Gödel is wrong with that, basically, right? So Gödel has shown that, that the mathematical intuition, human mathematical intuition, cannot be encoded into, a, into any kind of effectively axiomatizable system of, of axioms. So I think there's a, a difficulty there. Now, on the other hand, you could just suppose that God just miraculously infuses knowledge about essences into us on occasions, right? So I see a line, God just infuses some information about the essence of lines into me directly without using the form at all. Possible, but um, I think un undesirable, right? For a couple of reasons. Um, one is, yeah, so he could do it by, by sort of giving us a little oracle in the mind that just sort of says, between two points, there's a third point, right? Uh, and, uh, and then I come, to, I come to just trust this oracle because it's really reliable and tells me, tells me about things. I think this, this, is, this would be theologically objectionable because it would conflate the distinction between faith and, and sight, faith and, and, and uh, reason, right? 
Uh, it, would make, it would make my knowledge of geometry literally a matter of faith, right? Uh, and secondly, I think it has problems with the phenomenology of intuition, right? I, I can somehow see that the axioms of geometry are true. I don't just have to put blind faith in some oracle that's telling me so, right? So what, finally, about, what about primitive, represent, primitive representationalism? What about the Brouwer-Toland Brouwer view, right? Let's just say there's a primitive uh, relation. Well, that can, again, that can solve the semantic problem, right? It can give us precise semantic content, but it does nothing for the epistemological problem. It doesn't explain how we know anything about the essences, right? There has to be some way for the information about the essences to get into the mind, right? And that's, that involves some kind of direct causal connection. So you're no longer a primitive representationalist, right? You're now an Aristotelian again, right, in order to solve that particular problem. Yeah, so actually, I want to claim that this, this problem of modal knowledge is actually the more fundamental one of the two, the determinant semantic content in the knowledge. If we can explain how we have knowledge of essences, then it's easy to explain how our thoughts can have content, determinate content. If a particular interior word is a vehicle of knowledge about a particular species of form, then we can assign to that form that to that word, that form as its content, right? So knowledge can under, 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 undergird uh, semantic determinacy. Uh, what I can think about is determined, in a sense, by what I can know. All right, I'm gonna stop there uh, for reasons of time. So thanks very much for your attention. <laughs> Sorry, we're not a little too long. Oh, so we have some questions, but thank you for your talk. One is about the counterfactual theory. Uh, the point that human souls would be the counterfactual of the chemical. I think that may be uh, problematic. It might be true for things less than human persons, but our especially created souls like when we die, and we die, our souls separate from our body, our souls will not be in there. Right. So that's that's just a point. I just wanted to leave that aside. That's a point. Well, I can take that up though, okay. if you like. Because I think, I think that even there, you know, it is the distinctness of the prime matter in the past that explains the distinctness of the soul in, 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 the, in the disembodied yeah. state. Okay. That might be the same thing as you know, St. Thomas says when he talks about the commensuration between each soul and its own body. So yeah. that might come to the same thing. Too, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, what I want to focus on is the representationalist theory of sensation. Yeah. So I'll give you the sensible species are representing the sensible form, but they're not the representative. Now that can be understood in two ways. It could be that the sensible species are not the form in act, but they are potency. Or it can be stronger, where you could be saying that the representing the sensible species is not the form of the thing either in act or in potency. But if you go with the second strong, I think I do. And yeah. experience is not potentially intelligible, and the work of the ancient intellect would be surely intellectual. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So I, I do I do want to go with the second, I think, because I I mean maybe it's wrong, but it's hard for me to see how well first of all, how things like colors and so on could be in the visual cortex, right? Um, in any any way. Uh, and certainly, in the, in, if you look at Aristotle's account of things like tactile sense, it seems that his account is very representationalist in the sense that you know, I touch this hot stove, right? Um, the, my sensation of this hot stove consists in some shift in temperature in my nerve endings in my finger. The nerve, the finger never gets as hot as the stove does, right? But the shift in temperature represents the greater temperature of the stove, right? So I perceive that perceive that in that way. But then your, your question is, okay, but if all I have access to in sensation are these representing qualities that are, that are not specifically the same, not formally the same as the sensible qualities in any way, right? How can the, how can the active intellect um, uh, abstract them, right? And um, all the answer is, look, they're, they're there as represented. Uh, and my claim is that that's, that's just enough, right? I mean, there, in a sense, the, 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 the phantasm, or whatever, is being used as an, as an instrument. In a way, it's an instrument both of the external sensible object and of the active intellect. They're sort of collaborating through this instrument in order to produce the very same kind of form that's in the external object 
in the intellect, even though the intervening instrument doesn't have that same form, either in act or in potentiality. That's, that's, the, that's the account. And it's, I mean, is it, is it sort of mysterious? Maybe, but I don't see, I, don't, I mean, I don't think in general instruments have to have the very formality that they are giving to the, to the object, right? I can, I can use a pen to write uh, a poem, and that doesn't make the pen poetical, right? Um, the poetry is in my mind, and the pen is simply an instrument. So I think of the phantasm as just the instrument here of the, of the external object. There just seems to entail that sensation is not a genuine source from which or out of which the intelligible species is induced. And the activity of the agent is going to be invented and ultimately excellent. I don't think so. I mean, I think because I think I, I want to pull the external object into the story here and say that it's playing an essential role. And so that's why the sensible, the sensible quality per se is involved, just not directly, only, only indirectly. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not at all certain I gave the right answer, but it's my current uh, thinking anyway. This is kind of a follow-up I think that's, like, that, that's good. That's really helpful, I think. So, right, so the passive, the, in a sense, all of these intelligible species are in, in potency in the, in the potential intellect. They're sort of already there, right? They just need to be actualized. And the active intellect uses this phantasm as a sort of occasion or instrument for actualizing that particular thing. It isn't necessary for the sensible quality to be in the phantasm itself, I think, in any way, right? Uh, so long as, I mean, there has to be, and I think the reason that you need an active intellect, my sense of why you need an active intellect at all, is uh, that there's some kind of a, a plausible assumption here that merely physical material things can't affect human intellect directly, right? That they just don't have enough oomph or whatever to do that. So, so, so the, the, the sensible forms, the forms out there in nature can, can actualize my sense organs, that's fine. But they can't actualize my potential intellect all by themselves. They need, we need something spiritual, something non-material to do that. That's my thought. And just to follow up to Father James' uh, question. If the uh, sensible species doesn't contain the form of the thing in some way, then how is the thing known? Right? Just, just because color doesn't exist in the brain as it exists in in the table or in the light, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist there in some way. And so yeah. in the form of light, color has to be in the somehow. So it, 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 we know it because there's something in the brain that naturally represents the color. And that's sufficient for knowledge, in my view. Because again, um, you know, sensory knowledge doesn't tell us anything about the essences of color, right? Just 
that that color's there, this color's here. And to do that, it's enough to have things that, in the brain that naturally represent those colors to us. But we, we so maybe this is uh, taking a step back, we don't really know those representations, really. we know the color of the table. Right. Yes, exactly. So the, the representation is that. But why should. The, so the representation is that by which we know the color of the table, but I don't see why it, it itself needs to be colored in any sense. Again, it's, it's a sort of instrument by which the color of the table affects my uh, sensory capacities. I mean, we just don't, I just, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there's a kind of naive assumption here, right? The causation means that the thing, the effect is literally passed along from person to person. And that seems to me that's not Aristotle or Thomas's view of how causation works. So we should be careful not to import that into, the, into this account. Oh, yeah. Thank you for using the Good, that's a very helpful suggestions. Thanks, I'll, I'll double check this. And I, this was something I was a bit worried about, actually, because I know that, uh, I don't know that much about Aristotle's theory of mathematics. So I'll uh, just uh, press it, purpose it with that. So you're right, probably what I should do is talk about, you know, the essences, uh, the essence or quasi-essence of quantitative accidents uh, or extensive quantities in, in general, right? Uh, and then our knowledge, of knowledge, our knowledge of lines and points is somehow derived from that more fundamental knowledge of, of extensive quantity, right? Uh, and those, you know, accident, again, I, in, in the text I said essences or quasi-essences, right? Because there's a sense in which accidents don't have essences, right? But only really substances of accident, ex essences. But they have something like essences, right? Uh, that also under, underscore, undergird the modal profile of these accidents. Um, so there's, you know, there's something that explains why um, quantitative accidents are such that between any points there's at least potentially another point, right? And that is something that we grasp by having the quantitative accidents themselves directly acting on the intellect, I think. Yeah. Exist um, in external to the mind um, in the way that lines don't. Um, yeah. So, and I, I, I just think it smacks a little bit of just sort of a modern tendency to begin with um, extension, you know, or, or extended things. 
it's because it, it seems to require um, our, our conclusions, our ways of, of describing knowledge conform to a mathematical model. And I just don't think Aristotle starts there. I don't think Thomas stuff later that I think so. But thank you. Certainly, that, those are good points. Sam, uh, before you ask your question, you said one, one quick edit what Sister Anna said, and I could be completely wrong about this, but I seem to remember when taking a class uh, on Aristotle's face, that's what you're saying that uh, we tend to think that the lines have quanta can be quantified, but Aristotle didn't. Um, so that when you fight about it, you make references to the quantity of a line, or a line is quantitative, uh, but Seemingly, Aristotle would draw a distinction between quantity, numerical quantity, and magnitude. Um, because when you talk about spatial extension, it's not mathematical in the same way in the way he thinks about it. Now, obviously, the modern mathematics, from the, the modern mindset goes in a completely different direction. Physical. Sam? I haven't read Bernard uh, Cohen's paper in a while, but if I remember one of their reasons for adopting representationalism was um, the, the case of knowing substantial form. And I know you, you bracketed on substantial forms, but, but their objection was something that is a substantial form of a thing can't then become an accidental form of a possible intellect. And they had a very difficult metaphysical problem there. So that was what led them to reject the numerical, or not numerical, but uh, Thesis, yeah. Uh, well, actually, I, I, I produced a version of that objection in the, in the paper because I, I wasn't. I, I, I talked about quantitative versus qualitative. So, in other words, how, do, how does a quantitative accident get into the intellect when it become when it has when the habit of understanding it it has to be a quality? And my answer to that is that um, there's a sort of confusion here, right? As though the accident, it's the, the form itself is quantitative or qualitative, right? And therefore, you know, this very same form can't account for a quantity in this case and a quality in that case. But my, my answer is, sure it can, because it's, the, you know, the, the reception depends on the mode of the receiver. So when the form is received by prime matter, you get some quantity, or, or by a material substance, you get some quantity. When the very same form is received by the intellect, you get a quality. But it's, of course, it's a quality that's related to the quantity. It's, it's the understanding of the quality. So I don't think that, I just don't think that objection, I mean, not, not just them, Panaccio, everybody makes this objection, but I think it's just confused. I don't think it, don't think it has much, much weight to me. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I wanted to ask about, uh, I'm also like, uh, well, I don't know, I don't know what it's going on, but I'm sympathetic to the power of our role in primitive representation of you. And so I was wondering if you could say more about why you think that, um, you, you know, you have these Problems with getting um, accounted for how we know those foods on the view. Because I didn't quite follow how that argument was supposed to go. Yeah, so I mean, the, the theory is that you have a primitive relation, a primitive semantic relation, right, between some, some item in, in the mind or the brain and, and the external uh, uh, quality or quantity. And um, Fine, okay, that solves the semantic problem. Okay, what about the epistemological problem? How do I get knowledge of the essence, right? Now, we could, she could, you could go primitive here too, right? You could just say, okay, uh, piggybacking on the primitive representation relation is a primitive epistemic relation uh, in, which, uh, in which somehow the information about the essence is conveyed into the intellect. All right, fine. Now it seems to me that it's almost a verbal variant on my account, right? Because what is this epistemological relation? It's got to be something like a causal or constitutive relation if it's going to satisfy the constraints of knowledge, right? And so it's, let's just say, it's, it's, it's the form <laughs> acting on the intellect, right? I mean, I don't know what else it would be. Uh, if it's anything else, uh, then if, let's, let's say if it's just some kind of, um, again, infusion of information that God provides us independently or something like that, then you get into the other objections that I made. So, uh, so I think I think the point is that the the Brower Brower Tolan view gives us nothing to solve the epistemological problem, right? And so we got we still have to solve that problem. Here's my proposal. I look at the alternatives and find them wanting. Again, yeah, you can go primitive as you like. You just say, look, it's just knowledge. 
there's no answer as to what makes it knowledge or why, why it counts as knowledge. You can say that, but that, I'd rather not be if possible. Right, so the form of the fly, remember that's a substantial form, right? And I deliberately set that aside because that's a, that's a tough problem. And so I agree that there um, maybe we want to go even uh, a kind of representationalist account there. Uh, I'm sort of tempted by the idea that our knowledge, our cognition of substantial forms is by description. It's sort of like the form, whatever it is, that under, under, undergirds these proper accidents. So I, I may never get uh, a substantial form you know, in the potential intellect. But we better get some forms, right? Like the proper accidents themselves. I better understand those, or I'm never getting anywhere close to understanding substantial form. So again, uh, on your first point, um, Remember, all I'm claiming is that it, it's important that at least in some cases, the intellectual cognition be absolutely precise. And that it's impossible for sensory representation on the representationalist count to achieve that precision. Uh, so it's perfectly compatible with what I said to say that in many cases, the intellectual cognition is also imprecise. That's fine, as long as it's possible for it to be precise. Now you raise an interesting problem, of course, which is I put forward a model of how knowledge is possible. And then you can ask, well, how is confusion possible? How is error possible? Okay, I better say something about that at some point. But it's more important to get the knowledge right first, I think, right? And then start worrying about knowledge, error, and confusion, rather than you know, try to give an account of error and confusion first, and then hope you can somehow pull knowledge out of that. Right? that that's a mistake. Thank you. Praise the Lord.